Over at least the first half of 2023, if I were a rep, I would be thinking about being super focused on my basics, like the fundamentals, because that those are the easiest things to let go of if you get frazzled. So if you allow yourself to get frazzled, you're going to start slipping up on the simplest stuff, right? So like your execution is going to get more important because maybe you'll have a little less to work. You're going to have fewer hand raisers that have a project and a budget set aside. So you're going to have to develop um, more accounts from a place that they weren't really ready to buy. Um, thank you again for joining. How are you doing? I'm doing great. It's good to be here. And I just actually watched episode one with Dave Barron, who I know really well, and it was awesome. So good to listen to him talk to his stories. So I'm happy to be your number two. That is so great. Yeah, he mentioned that you guys work together and it was funny. It wasn't planned, but um, we'll see how many of these we can string together where everyone knows each other. Oh, we're going to kind of dive right in. I always kick it off the same, right? Where I read off your actual LinkedIn and we'll just go, you know, from back to front. Education was Suffolk University. Is that right? And is that is that Boston area? That's right. It's a little school up on Beacon Hill in Boston. Um, I didn't have a very good reason for picking it out. I think like my friend was going there and it was on a short list of local schools that I thought I might go to. So I just went there. Um, and I studied psychology while I was there, which I had no idea at the time would be so helpful to me in sales. But yeah, Suffolk is a local Boston school. That's so great. I've been to Boston once. So my girlfriend, now wife, went to a very small school called Wheaton that was mm -hmm. far, far away from Boston. But I flew into Boston to visit. So yeah. Suffolk University. Yeah. yeah, come back. Yeah. Come back in the spring. Not now. It's not nice here now. So are you, have you always been in the Boston area or like where have you moved now? I have. Um, my whole family is here. And so it made sense for me to stick around. I tried to get out a couple of times, but it never happened. And um, yeah, so I've been in Boston, but I will, I will get to the beach. I will live on the beach sooner or later. That's a promise. Haven't decided I, where yet. Maybe it's Maybe it's just whenever we talk your background with the plants. I thought you were in Florida. I thought you were living, you know, yeah. somewhere in the in the tropics. <laughs> <laughs> this is my tropical jungle behind me, but it's the closest yep. to Florida I can get right now. No, that's great. Okay, so then, like, if we look at you know where you started out. So you graduated, and then tell us about you know. Obviously, the meat of the discussion today, the listeners, we're going to talk about Drift. You know, you're the senior director of sales at Drift currently. But go back to the beginning. So it was you graduated from Suffolk, then it's Clear Channel Radio Group. Was that really your first rollout of college? Yeah, I started in sales right away. Um, I got into ad sales and uh, I did that for like eight years, which went by really fast. Um, but yeah, that's how I got my my start in sales before I went into tech. Do you remember like that interview or the first, you know, how did how did you feel like when you got that job? Um, I think I was young enough that I didn't even know what I was getting into. I just figured I would figure it out. Um, my dad was a salesperson when I was growing up. So I kind of like had been exposed to sales my whole life. Um, and I just figured I'd give it a shot and it worked out really well. I did better than I expected in my first couple of years. So I just stuck with it. 
And then after, you know, Clear Channel, you were there for quite a while. So almost seven or eight years. Mm -hmm. Yep. I was there for a good run. And I actually wasn't even planning on leaving when I left. I wasn't thinking about going, but, um, and this kind of bleeds into the how I started at HubSpot story. But um, I think one morning in like the end of 2010, I was sitting in like my double wide cubicle in the radio station that I was working for. And I was reading the Boston Business Journal, which I did every morning because it was actually like part of how I prospected then. Um, And I read a story about this little startup in Boston, best small company to work for. And it was HubSpot. And that's how I um, that's how I decided that I wanted to to move into tech and go to HubSpot. Oh my gosh, that's such a great story. What was the what was your first role at HubSpot? So I, I actually started in sales there and I'll I'll give you the backstory on how I actually got in there because again, I was moving from ad sales into tech, um, which was a pretty big leap for me. You know, I had been selling for seven or eight years, which is a long time, but it's something really yeah. different. So um you know, when I when I read about that, I was like, okay, I think I want to find out about this company. Um, and I had to figure out who the VP of sales was so that I could ping that person and see if they would take a meeting with me. So I asked for an introduction um, between a common connection uh, of me and the VP of sales there then, who was Mark Roberge, who I think you know. Um, and he agreed to take a meeting with me. And I was like, oh, I'm just going to figure this out as I go. And it was really informal, actually. When I first, you know, went in to meet, it was not part of, like, the full interview process. It was more, I guess they call it, informational. Uh, And I honestly think he was kind of skeptical of me. I don't know if he remembers it the same way, but he's, like, you know, sitting with this ad sales girl with no tech experience. I was in Ivy League, and, you know, like, everyone at HubSpot then was at MIT, so I just... I don't know if I fit the profile at the time. It was still, you know, a pretty small company. I think there were maybe like 30 or 40 reps all in working there then because it was like the end of 2010 and maybe around 30 million in revenue. I'm guessing. I hope I'm guessing right. But I think like 25 or 30 million. So it's like, you know, a small, tight company. And like, again, it was probably a big bet for them to try to like take on someone from ad sales that had no tech experience. So um, I was in that informational meeting with him and, you know, he was very nice and trying to be helpful. And he's like brainstorming where I might go from ad sales. And he's like, Oh, you should also meet my friend, Ryan Burke, who runs a sales team at this place called compete, which is a little bit more ad focused. And the reason that that's funny is because Compete at that time, it was a company founded and run by David Cancel, who I would go on to work with later at HubSpot. Now I work, you know, for him again at Drift. And it's just like an example of how like everything ends up connecting. And I was certainly bound to meet him um, and and know him well. So anyway, but back to the HubSpot interview, I really wanted to work there. So I somehow was able to convince them to take me through the whole interview process. And it was really hard. I remember I like bought the inbound marketing book that Brian and Darmesh had written. And I read it in like two nights leading up to, you know, the final step in my interview, I was reading till like two in the morning. I'm like, all right, I think I got this concept down. I figured it out. 
Um, and I pulled it off. They, they agreed to give me a shot and they gave me a job. And I remember sitting in the garage in the parking lot on my first day in my car. And I had just come out of this job that I'd had for like eight years. I'd been doing really well. I like wasn't working on Fridays because it was easy enough for me to do that. And I'm in the garage at HubSpot and I'm like, oh my God, what have I done? You know, like, am I even going to be able to pull it off? Um, and I went in and later that day after like my first training session, they brought me upstairs and brought me over to my desk. They're like, all right, this is where you're going to sit for like your first month. And I look to the right and guess who's sitting next to me, whose desk is right next to me is Halligan, our CEO. Um, so there was a lot of pressure. I had to make all my first inbound lead calls next to him. And remember he looked at me and he's like, looks at me for a long time. And then it goes, have you sold anything yet? <laughs> um, and anyway, he like, he went on to be a very influential person in my career. He's one of the smartest people I know. And I just was very lucky to get to work for the company at a time that it was so small that you could have that yeah. kind of, access, you know, and I, I really just was like a sponge. It was, I think he used to right. call it Oz this, you know, so that's the story of how I got out of radio and into tech. Brian, the CEO, Brian Halligan, I know he's just recently has stepped back, but he built out and was leading HubSpot for so long. So you sat right next to him. Was he was he saying that like on day one or the first week? Like when did he turn and say that to you? Well, he was kidding. You know, he was totally kidding, but yeah. he's like deadpan when he says that kind of thing. So I actually didn't know at the time if he was kidding, but he was kidding. I think it was my first or second day. What makes HubSpot special? Aura about the early HubSpot team and even just the Boston tech space. And so I wanted to ask you, you know, when you think back to some of those conversations, or maybe it was the interview or that first couple years in seat, um, like, what do you feel like? What makes HubSpot so special? Like, is there a, like a creative spark? Is there something that the, the team or the culture tries to foster? Um, like, yeah. what do you think goes into that? I mean, it is a very special company, and I think that I still think it every day. You know, it's just such a well-run business, and you really learn to appreciate how unusual that is for a company to go through that type of scale over such a period of time and just execute so well. And I think, you know, it's largely because of how the foundation was built. It's like when you build a house, build it on a really good foundation – that's what HubSpot was like. It was just done really, really well from the beginning, um, just in terms of systems and processes and um, and how the business was was scaled. But I think, you know, your question about creativity, when I was there early on, that was really encouraged. Like we did a lot of experimental work. I actually was given the opportunity in my first year, actually, um, to build an experimental sales team selling into higher ed and nonprofit. And when I did that, the way that they set it up, and this was like my, the, my first shot at management, because if I pulled it off and was able to sell into these customers and show that it was scalable, I could build a sales team and add my first reps and manage them. So that was like how I got my shot. And the way that they set it up was they took the executive team and turned it into like my board. So every month I would go into my board meeting, which was Brian and Darmesh and the rest of the execs. And I would present like how the team was doing 
how we're doing on sales, what our unit economics look like. If I wanted an investment in my little business, I had to justify that. So if I wanted to add headcount or if I wanted to add, you know, someone from my own CS team, that all happened in those meetings. And I mean, I can't think of a better way uh, to work creatively and to learn and to take that kind of feedback from that group at the time just got me off to an incredible start. Like, where do you get that opportunity as you're learning how to manage um, to actually like build and scale your own sales team? That sounds like such a great way to actually learn and to be motivated to start tracking, you know, metrics and to hold yourself accountable, but to kind of, without going through a formal internal interview process and actually changing titles. And we just called them the experiments, you know, like there were a group of us that each had one. Um, another one was e-com. There were a couple of people that were tinkering around with e-commerce and trying to figure that out. And they had the same structure. Um, I'm trying to think if there were, there were a couple of others at that time, um, the startup program at HubSpot started that way, selling into um, really small companies. So there was like this really nice structure around experimentation um, that allowed us to do it and, you know, take risks in an organized way, learn, and then like either drop something or build it up even bigger. And, you know, you'd probably have to talk to some people that have been there more recently, but I'm sure that's still, you know, very much a part of the fabric of how they do things. It, it's not something I've heard at other teams. I mean, I, I've been a part of some different, you know, fast flying and fast growing SaaS companies, but I haven't heard that much of a, an actual, so while you were doing that, you still had a quota, you were still an AE for the higher ed division. Yep. So I carried, you know, my regular full quota until, you know, I could show that I could hit that, um, you know, within my future team. And then once I could prove that I could add a person or two and get the same results, I was able to move out of an AE role and into a proper manager role. And then I had a, you know, manager quota for the reps under me on that experimental team. And then ultimately, what came next? Did you did you go, you said Cosimo was the next step, you know, how did you kind of navigate? It was that step. And then to litmus, I guess I'm curious, those two roles. So at first I thought, you know, okay, I want to go work for really, really, really early stage startup, um, which I hadn't really done. Right. Like HubSpot was early on, but not quite that small. Um, And I learned a lot actually about the difference between, a super early stage company where your employee like number seven versus coming in when there's a sales team of 30 or 35 reps and some built out processes and customers. Um, And that's sort of where I learn where my sweet spot is moved into litmus and um, was director of sales there for a few years, which is a company that sells email marketing software. So very much in the same category that HubSpot had been in. Um, and, you know, now Drift still selling into uh, to marketing teams. Um, but the role at, at Litmus was very much like what I'm doing now at Drift, um, you know, had managers rolling up to me and then a pretty big sales team. Um, we had, you know, inbound, outbound. We had a PQL motion at Litmus. Um, and a big part of my job there wasn't just 
managing managers, but learning how to work very cross-functionally with, uh, you know, the CS team, with the ops team, with the product marketing team, um, finance. Uh, so, you know, in that director role, that's where I really started to figure out how you scale across the whole business um, and really drive things forward from like a go-to-market perspective, which is different than, you know, a, a manager role. I was going to ask you that one. Just there's a lot of folks who are listening who are probably AEs who want to become managers or managers who who currently, you know, they've been building and leading and coaching and developing all the steps to manage their team. But what have you seen as like the big step from managing the ICs to then, you know, becoming a director level where you're managing managers? Yeah. What's what's the one biggest difference or what's something everyone should try to pick up quick? I don't know that there's one difference, Paul, so much. It's like, how do I boil it down? It's how much can you scale yourself? You know, someone once told me that the sign of a great sales leader is that you could go away for two or three weeks and everything would pretty much keep running the same way without you being there, um, which is a kind of scary thing because if you can actually pull that off, you feel like bloated overhead. But in actuality, like that's what you're kind of going for where You know, first you're doing that as a manager with your sales team, you get your reps independent enough that they can continue to operate with very little involvement from you where you can even step away and they can keep running their deals. And then you sort of repeat the same thing with managers. It's now can I coach up my managers to the point where they can operate with very little involvement from me. And, you know, now at the director level, you're taking maybe 50, 60% of your time and you're dedicating it to that cross-functional work, you know, with the demand gen team, with the ops team to try to think about the business from a bigger perspective. Um, And you're just always trying to do that. You're always trying to figure out how do I maximize myself so that I can get more done through people. Um, And you learn that the first time as a manager. And then as you get really good at that, you become ready to become a director. That is so, so helpful to hear how you see it. And uh, people want to hear about senior director at Drift, what you've seen. Um, can you maybe share with us just a quick story on when you actually got in with Drift? What what was it? You know, What drew you to it? Um, what got you so excited about Drift? So Drift, like reason number one is uh, the product. So at my previous company, we use Drift for our sales team. And it was just such a major part of how we built pipeline and got deals done. Like I am the persona that we sell to at Drift. So our value props just deeply resonate with me in terms of, you know, jobs to be done. Um, So the product just, you know, made sense for me. But the bigger reason, reason number two um, is DC and Elias, who are the founders of Drift. And, you know, I got to know them both very, very well when I was working at HubSpot with them. They were running our product and engineering teams after HubSpot acquired their then company Performable. Um, And when I got to know them, I was a sales leader and they were running product, but I, you know, I thought of them as mentors and I tried to model the way that I lead people and the way after they did, because, um, you know, I was just so impressed with how they operated. So when they left HubSpot and founded another company, which would become Drift, I sort of always knew 
in the back of my head, I'd come work for their company. It almost didn't even matter what it was. I just have so much respect for them in terms of the types of products they build and the kinds of teams they build, which they've now done at three companies together. So like that story of why I came to Drift is what I tell when I'm interviewing um, and hiring reps. I always say that I came to Drift because I follow David and Elias anywhere. You know, they're the kind of people that you go work with again and again, and you stick things out for them. Um, so those are, those are the big reasons why I came here uh, and why I'm still here now. I like that thinking just like... next segment here where we talk about PLG product led growth. You mentioned you've seen it in a couple different roles. Um, so can I ask you first, it just, it doesn't have to be perfect, but what is your definition of product led growth PLG? Um, I think PLG ultimately is a, it's a growth model or go to market motion. And it depends upon the value being created for a user of a product absent of the involvement of an onboarding team or a salesperson early on. Right. So if you can do those things, you're doing PLG. I like that. The framing of is everything built from either the product or from customer support or from the email interaction, like every touch point it's, if it can be run absent the sale, there's a question. Is it a scary place? It feels like it's getting to a scary place. Like, do you think PLG is going to end up killing off the sales rep or everything, you know, in your background that you picked up from being a seller? I don't think so, uh, you know, because there's still a role for a seller in that model. It just isn't upfront, it, like in a traditional sales process. And I think there's another piece too, which is PLG isn't going to be a fit for every company, right? It just isn't going to be the right motion depending upon the nature of your product. And I say that because some products are just going to need more human intervention upfront um, for a number of reasons. And the other piece is that you have to have a very, very short time to value in your product from the moment a user signs up to activation to this aha moment, right? Where like they're starting to get that value out of the product. Only then, if all of that happens, have you sort of succeeded in actually building out like the flow that you need. But then on top of that, you have to make sure that the right users are moving into your product. And if that doesn't happen, then the sales rep, you know, would have a very difficult time expanding these accounts because they're the, not the right fit users in the first place. So for a number of reasons, I think, you know, PLG and PQLs, those can be a part of how you sell at most companies. Like it could be one of your funnels and then you have a more traditional funnel as well. Um, but for a lot of companies, it either won't be a fit. It won't be the only way they do things. And then even if it is, you're still going to have sales reps just in a different type of a role. No, I, I really like how you're, you're hitting on that. That's not for every go-to-market motion or it's not for every type of product. Um, mm -hmm. But it's, it's been interesting the past couple of years and it's going to be interesting to see just how the trend plays out. Like do a few companies get, do they go too, do they tilt too much to product-led growth? And then in the next year or two, are they finding that 
they're really not seeing any revenue or predictable revenue come in. Um, mm-hmm. Well, I think you have to have some patience too. Like uh, the reason that it worked so well, part of the reason that it worked so well at HubSpot when, um, when it was first kicked off there was because there was just a lot of resources and funding for that where you could be patient and how it all shakes out. And I think, you know, a lot of us on our teams are trying to go really fast and we want quicker results. And I, I would imagine that a lot of teams wouldn't necessarily have the patience to let it play out through all of the growth experiments that it takes to even get it working in the first place. That reminds me of like the story about Figma and getting acquired by Adobe. They, there was some period I was listening to on a podcast that they had five years. I think it was from 2013 to 2018 or from 2012 to 2017. They had a five-year window where they had zero revenue. So for five years, they were talking about activating users and getting you know, more you know, weekly users or getting teams engaged. And that was all for the Figma design and collaboration platform. And five years later, then they started cranking up revenue and, and putting in a small sales team. So we're going to swing over to kind of the investor corner here. So if you're up for it, we're just going to talk finance, money, um, those sorts of questions. That sound fair? Yeah, let's do it. Okay. So um, what's your take with investing, stock market, um, or have you leaned towards like setting up a 401k? Yeah, I mean, I've had a 401k as long as I've been in sales. And I that seems like an easy one that everyone should definitely consider and see if you can max it out. Um, I think most most people that I know have one set up. That's that's been always like at a fir- first few companies I worked at, I've always tried to set up like a monthly investor club or get some of the different AEs and even other people across every team just to hear mm-hmm. from, you know, the the experts, the VPs and folks who had done this for a long time ago. Have you stuck with the same 401k or have you done a few rollovers as you've changed jobs? And do you have one yeah. like, you know, like E-Trade or Vanguard? Do you have one that you like to use? Yeah, I have rolled them over um, with Fidelity. Um, and I think most companies make that pretty easy for you as you move around. But it's been a crazy couple of years. Like, who knows when the perfect time would have been to to do a rollover. Uh, yeah. But whenever you do the rollover, then you, you, you know, I think it's within 90 days you have to um, put it back into, you know, either a settlement account or put it into other equities. Um, mm-hmm. So, okay. So that's great that you've always set that up. What about what can you share some thoughts on like ESOPs or equity? Um, obviously, you know, HubSpot was a, a great company. Litmus was exciting. And then Drift just managing and thinking through like those equity offers and, and kind of how do you, how do you just manage it? Um, well, we have Carta set up at Drift and we had that at, um, litmus as well. So that's how I, um, manage it all, which is a pretty easy system to work with. Um, you know, I, I would definitely encourage anyone who is going to work for any startup to look really closely at the equity offer and make sure that you understand it. And, um, you know, there are a bunch of ways to do that so that you go in pretty well educated on 
you know, what your upside is and how to handle it. Um, I think that there is probably some undereducation for a lot of people. You know, you, you take a job and you get your offer letter and you're like, oh, there's some equity here. And if you don't really know what it means or what it could amount to, then you're probably missing out. So um, definitely worth taking some time to think about as you consider an offer outside of just your, you know, your comp package in terms of the base and um, your variable. Well, it kind of goes back to the PLG conversation about letting things really marinate and having a long time horizon. Like, yeah, Figma mm-hmm. had five years of, of pre-revenue, but a lot of these companies, yeah. even the great ones, it takes seven, nine, ten years for there to be a moment where it's actually this exciting liquidation mm-hmm. moment. And I think it's really hard. I mean, I have never been able to look, you know, too far out, you know, two years, three years, four years. So it's really hard, I imagine, to like think about what really is the the equity component and then to be patient enough to say this might pay off in 10 years. That's, that's a long time when you're first starting out. Yeah, definitely. The longer term you can think the better off with a lot of things, but you, you learn that with time. Did you have a 90 day window to exercise once you left a company or did you ever have where they actually gave you like an extended period? Cause I'm hearing that is hopefully a new trend where companies are going to start let yeah. you know ex employees have like a like a five year or even a ten year. What have you found? I haven't heard about that yet, but I did. I have noticed that you know with some some of the companies that are unfortunately unfortunately laying off. Um, I've noticed that some of them are doing deals for the employees so that they have a longer period of time. Um, yeah, I have always had the ninety day window, which you know has worked out okay for me. I haven't had a longer term window than that, but it would be interesting. I think if companies start to offer that. Maybe I, I thought it was a trend or maybe I just brought it up and hopefully it becomes a trend, but yeah. I think that would be, it would be in the best interest of, I mean, when you're, when you're in your early stages of your career, you don't, you know, the first 90 days after you switch to a new role, there's a lot of stress there. And I don't know if everyone's thinking, you know, like a, a true long-term financial advisor play would be to, think through the best way to actually, you know, capture those shares. And so you're writing a check back to your company, then they're granting mm-hmm. those shares. Um, and then you manage it for year over year over year in Carta. Um, mm-hmm. But I'll put in the, when I share this out, I'll put a link. Carta came out with a new tool for calculating the, there's the alternative minimum tax, the AMT tax that different sales professionals, especially we are prone to this. Um, mm-hmm. so the Carta website, it does show you before you exercise, how to at least, you know, back in the napkin math, you can, you can guesstimate how much tax burden or what will be your tax liability. So mm-hmm. I've gone through Which is a just thing to consider. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah, they have a pretty nice setup. So that would be a great, I think, great thing to share with the audience. But I was going to ask you about like a new tool or a new app. So obviously sometimes we talk about new techniques on here. So we just talked about Carta, but is there one, um, could be professional, it could be a personal, is there an app or a tool, um, something you've been really using as of late? I mean, I have all of my sales management tools, which I'm, you know, pretty stuck on Gong and I'm in Clary and all the, the usual suspects, but um, I don't know, like this, this might sound funny, but Grammarly has saved me. I have it now set up. 
I have it set up in my email, in my Slack, in my docs. I have the paid version and I've become such a better writer as a result of using it. I wish I'd been using it a long time ago. I had no idea. I had no idea, Paul, how bad my grammar actually was until I started using it. And now you couldn't rip it away from me. Um, I don't know. I think my middle school English teacher would be very proud of my writing now, but it's only because of Grammarly. So that's my plug. I tell all my reps to add Grammarly. That's a good one. I've, I mean, I've always set it up and just had the free version, but I saw their, their CRO talk at Saster and I mm-hmm. thought it was one of the better presentations. And it was, yeah, it was talking about just, they're really in a long-term play and they see almost like people talk about what's your addressable market and who, you know, who can you sell to? What's your top vertical? And they're really, yeah, like everyone, anyone who's writing. So so impressed with how they operated. So when they left HubSpot and founded another company, which would become Drift, I sort of always knew in the back of my head, I'd come work for their company. It almost didn't even matter what it was. I just have so much respect for them in terms of the types of products they build and the kinds of teams they build, which they've now done at three companies together. So like that story of why I came to Drift is what I tell when I'm interviewing um, and hiring reps. I always say that I get to drift because I follow David and Elias anywhere. You know, they're the kind of people that you go work with again and again, and you stick things out for them. Um, so those are, those are the big reasons why I came here uh, and why I'm still here now. I have never met David. I met Elias um, once in San Francisco. Um, it was a dinner that was put on, I think Dave Gerhardt, the, the original right CMO at drift or, I now he's posting workout videos on LinkedIn. I, I have seen um, some that pops right. up. All the time. But he set up these really, really interesting like revenue talks. And like it was like a 20 person dinner in San Francisco. And it was just, yeah, get to hear the drift story from the CTO was, was really interesting. Is there something that you could share, you know, either from your conversations with customers or from your meetings internally with just your AEs? Like, how are you looking at 2023? How should salespeople be adjusting? How should they be thinking? What would you have a lot of sellers and AEs? What should they focus on in the next year? I mean, like the economy is going to be rocky for a little bit. It just is what it is. And you may have less inbound. You might be running into budget issues. You might start dealing with longer sales cycles. Like There will be challenges and there's always challenges in sales, but we're going to go through a challenging period. But like what goes down comes back up and it will. And when it bounces back, um, there will probably be even more demand because that's kind of the cyclical way that things go is, you know, everyone sort of starts buying again and there's a nice little bump that comes with that. Um, But over at least the first half of 2023, if I were a rep, I would be thinking about, being super focused on my basics, like the fundamentals, because that those are the easiest things to let go of if you get frazzled. So if you allow yourself to get frazzled, you're going to start slipping up on the simplest stuff, right? So like your execution is going to get more important because maybe you'll have a little less to work. You're going to have fewer hand raisers that have a project and a budget set aside. So you're going to have to develop um, more accounts from a place that they weren't really ready to buy. And I think of things like doing really, really good research and prep before every call. 
um, focusing on your networking, asking for referrals, educating yourself um, on the industries that you serve. And if you are really focused on doing all those things over the next six months or so, you will do better than the group around you. Um, and then when you come out on the other side, you're going to be super polished too, because you were focused on, on the right things um, during a trickier time. So I think it's just very important that everyone keep cool, you know, like, okay, it's a little rocky, but such is life and um, focus on, on the best practices and on fundamentals and get your practice in. And I think, you know, some people will do very well during this time. Hey, Brooke, that's it. That's time. So thank you so much. I mean, great to just connect back up with you and thanks for joining and um, really like your insights here. Yeah, it was great to talk about all these things and um, I look forward to seeing the rest of the episodes too.